You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. This is your host today, Sloan Simmons. I'm a partner at a Lozano Smith Sacramento office, one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in litigation. Uh, also do a lot of student work, but I'm also a talker and I'm joined by two other talkers today. Um, one, we're honored to have with us Marcy Gutierrez, a partner also out of Sacramento's uh, out of Lozano Smith Sacramento office, a nearly 20 year practitioner but who is uh, one of our firm's co-practice group leaders in special education, one of, a statewide a- expert when it comes to student special education law, but has dabbled amongst uh, various other fields in education law over the years. Um, and we are happy and honored to have her with us today. Also joining us, Christy Boyce, one of our associates here in Sacramento who works in both the student and special ed areas, as well as dabbling in other, other areas too. Uh, including a federal court litigation with regard to 504, ADA, and IDEA appeals. And we're all here today to talk about LRE, Least Restrictive Environment in the Special Education Context. Are we ready? Let's do this. We're ready. All right. All right. Marcy or Christy, either of you, first, let's lay the groundwork. What is LRE? So LRE, the, the IDA provides that states must uh, develop procedures to ensure that disabled students are educated with non-disabled students to the maximum extent appropriate unless the severity or nature of their disability prevents them from being in the general education environment even with the aid of supplementary uh, services and supports. Yeah, it's, it's important to emphasize here that this is a mandatory obligation. It's mandatory for the IEP process to, um, to provide students with an education that really does ensure that they're educated with non-disabled peers to the maximum extent that's appropriate, given the severity and nature of their disability. Now, I know we're going to talk about some of the more recent cases in this area. Um, there's also obviously decisional law that, that, that you guys are going to get into as well, but when you say it's mandatory, is this driven by the IDEA itself or IDEA regulations? Where's the source of kind of the legal principles that drive this? Well, the mandatory obligation to educate in the LRE comes straight out of the language of the IDEA, but the IDEA didn't really give us um, specific um, definition of what was required by LRE. So where that comes from for us here in California and within the Ninth Circuit is a case that we, we call the Rachel Holland case or the Rachel H case. So before we go to Rachel H., um, what are some of, just broadly speaking, some of the issues that that we see or what you guys see in your practice and with our school district and county office of education clients around the state that often arise with regard to LRE? I mean, Christy, feel free to chime in here, but I think the most difficult types of cases involving LRE is when there's a disagreement between a parent and a school district about what that really means. Um, for example, we may have a case where a parent wants their child to be um, included within a general education setting for you know 80% of the day, 90% of the day, 100% of the day, and there may be concern from school staff that that child might not be able to make appropriate progress 
um, in a gen ed setting for that percentage of the day. So those really are, are the most difficult cases when there's just a disagreement about what LRE really means. So that, you've brought up an interesting point. I know that, Christy, you, you were involved in the JS case, so we'll, we'll get there. But I think this notion of least restrictive environment doesn't necessarily mean full 100% inclusion in a general ed classroom or no inclusion. I think you, you're talking about like an amount of time, 80%, 50%. And so that's often how it gets divided up. Yes, that's correct. Sometimes you'll see the student will have academics in like, say, a special day class and then electives, they might be in a general ed uh, setting, but it really depends on the child's individual needs. Some students will spend all of their time in the general ed setting and might have an individual aid. It just depends on the child's disability and their needs. Yeah, there's there's really no bright line um, exact definition and it's going to change it's going to be individualized on a case-by-case basis for every kiddo um, some kids LRE is going to be hundred percent mainstreaming while other students um, LRE for them may be only 40 percent of time in agenda setting so it's really sort of a, a sliding scale um, where staff are asking and parents are asking that question of um, where can this child make appropriate progress on their IEP goals before I ask Christy to talk more about kind of the facts that were involved in the Rachel H case so is this this is a part of the IEP process? We're talking about it at our at our our, our, our annual and triennial IEPs, and so that's question one. Question two: Do we see that LRE tends to change over time, or or does that remain fairly static depending on the student's disabilities? I think you can see it change. Sometimes you know you'll you'll try to start with you know the general ed- education setting and you know with the goal of full inclusion exactly yeah. and you'll see you know if the student's not making appropriate progress you might see more supplementary aids or services and sometimes that just doesn't work so you do sometimes see it change and where a student might be you know in a more sort of restrictive setting mm-hmm. i think you're absolutely right and and taking that example kind of like um, contrasting it with the, with the exact opposite account uh, case there actually are those cases out there where a student who is initially found eligible for special education, the first offer of placement may be in a residential placement. Those are few and far between. But right. I love the fact, that Christy, that you started with this concept of um, full inclusion and seeing whether or not the student can make appropriate progress in the gen ed setting and then adding on the supplementary supports and services. I think that's the right way to look at this. If we can remember, let's come back to that at the end because I think that, that that's triggering for me kind of a very practical and best practices type concept for districts instead of some will be obvious you know residential placement and there's no question about it but others um, it seems like you'd be better served to start out as most you know full inclusive as inclusion as possible so that when and if it does end up in litigation you can show that you gave it a shot at each step of the way and increasingly after a period of time, landed on a more restrictive environment for the student. And it's not a set rule, but I think conceptually speaking, I think that's the right kind of concept and approach, but I don't want um, the misconception out there that um, every student that we need to start with 100% right. um, general education setting, but um, I, th- I think that's a good point that you make. Well, thank you to both of you. This sets a good kind of framework for us to talk about this. Christy. Rachel H. Rachel H. So Rachel H. is the landmark Ninth Circuit case in which the court establishes the four-factor balancing test in determining whether a disabled student is in the least restrictive environment. 
So just some background facts. Uh, Rachel H. was an intellectually disabled girl with an IQ of 44. And she was in full-time, regular, second-grade classroom with supplemental services. Uh, her parents appealed the district's decision to place her in a special education class for academic subjects and a reg regular class for non-academic activities like art, music, lunch, and recess. Uh, and the hearing officer had ordered the district to place Rachel in the regular classroom with supports and services, including a special education consultant and a part-time aide. The, the district did appeal this determination, but it was affirmed by the district court. And it was later affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. So, Marcy, um, I think you said from the start, this is derived from the IDEA. And I know we've got a regulation that I guess in essence mirrors the language in the IDEA, but it's, it's ambiguous or lacks specificity as to factors. Here we have Rachel H. back in 1994. How did the Ninth Circuit decide this case and what factors or tests did it develop to, to make decisions on the LRE issue? Right. The court in this case, um, you know, obviously looked to the plain language of the IDEA and the regulations that you've mentioned and said, wow, well, what really is LRE? Um, they looked at some other circuit court decisions and, and saw what's happening in some other circuits um, and basically came up with this, this approach. And particularly in Rachel's case, they looked at, you know, what was the academic, was she receiving any academic benefit? And in her case in particular, her teacher actually testified that, yes, she was definitely receiving academic benefit. Um, she was able to recite the alphabet in both English and I believe it was Hebrew, if I recall correctly. Um, the court didn't just look at academic benefit, though. They also looked at non-academic benefit, which we sometimes refer to as social benefit. And, you know, according to the testimony in that particular case, you know, mom and the teacher both said, you know, Rachel's happy at school. She's confident. She really likes interacting with non-disabled peers. Um, so that was the second factor. But then the court looked at two other factors, one of them being um, the impact. Does the student impact the teacher? Does the student impact the other students in the classroom? Sometimes we call that third factor behavior, um, but it doesn't always have to be behavior because there perhaps are other ways um, students can impact uh, a teacher and or other students. The fourth factor the court looked at, but um, kind of um, shoo shooed away was this cost factor. Um, is, is, is it costly to place a student in a general education setting versus a special education setting and sort of doing a cost comparison there? I know in discussing this issue generally, if you two before now, there's some thoughts about costs that we might talk about, but I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll put that to the side for now. And, and Christy, all right, so Rachel H., back in 1994, um, obviously we're, we're a significant am amount of time forward by now. Do you, uh, what would you identify as maybe some examples of how the courts have applied Rachel H. since that point in time? Um, well, we have another example. We have the Pula case, and this is also a Ninth Circuit case. And this actually originated in Arizona. And then this particular case, it involved a profoundly deaf 13-year-old boy. And he had, uh, when he was 10, the district conducted his triennial evaluation, and he, they found that his reading skills were only at a first grade level and his math skills were at the second grade level, and his communications were nearly non-existent. So the IEP, in this particular case, the IEP team recommended additional supplementary services, including one-on-one -on -one small group instruction, 
individual resource support and a full-time interpreter and 18 hours per week in a regular education setting. Um, but even with all these supplementary aids and supports, the students' performance, it, there but just wasn't much improvement. So, so let me just stop you for a question. So 18 hours in the regular ed setting, it was all of that time in the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind, or was 18 hours in a regular district setting and then the remainder of the time in the Arizona School of Deaf and Blind? So at this point, he wasn't in a school for Isn't the blind. This was okay. just a general education, regular school. Got so, it, yeah. got it. Um, so the IEP team met again uh, due to his lack of performance, and they recommended placement at the Idaho State School for the Deaf and Blind. Uh, shortly after that decision, the family moved to Arizona, and based on that uh, IEP, the Arizona School District re recommended placing the student at the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind. And at, at this point, the parents disagreed with that placement, and the school initiated a due process hearing. And so the hearing officer concluded the student should be at the Deaf and Blind School, but the parents appealed uh, that decision, and it eventually made its way to the Ninth Circuit, where the Rachel H. factors were applied to uh, the least to determine the least restrictive environment for this student. Uh, so, in looking at those four factors, um, the district court had reviewed the student's history of mainstreaming and had heard from expert witnesses as to the likely success of continued mainstreaming. And it was determined that based on this student's needs, he, uh, he, they concluded that the deaf and hard of hearing school would be more appropriate so that the student could make progress in that setting. Christy, I, I know there's other factors I know you want to talk about with this case, but when we talk about expert testimony relative to the LRE issue, does that is that generally a, a, an important factor in due process cases? on LRE or does it depend on the nature of the disability as far as the importance of expert testimony in a due process case where LRE is an issue? I think expert testimony, anytime it's in, in any case, it's always going to be something the court's going to look at. Um, in every case that we're talking about here today and probably the, the um, large, uh, the bulk of the cases involving LRE, there's going to be expert testimony. So certainly courts are going to look at that. Um, it's going to be compelling evidence. And, uh, you know, the you know judges in these cases have to weigh the evidence of the IEP team members who have that direct knowledge and that daily interaction with students and weigh that, that testimony and that credibility and that expertise with um, the expertise of, um, you know, various, you know, private or independent experts that you're going to see in almost all these cases. So another naive question by me, and I tend to ask a lot of naive questions on oh, this podcast. Oh, come on, <laughs> So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that in an LRE case that the student's family is likely to call an expert to testify uh, in opposition to the district's position. Uh, and you also just referenced the fact that we've got a whole IEP team, or districts and county offices of ed will have a whole IEP, IEP team, teachers and school psychologists, you name it, who, who will justify and explain their thoughts as to LRE. Do, do our district clients tend to call separately experts apart from their IEP team members and the experts that are on that IEP team itself at these hearings, or is that usually testimony that comes from the district's team itself? 
I mean, every case is different. I think um, a, a lot of cases, uh, cases I personally litigated, typically we do like to have an independent expert come in and review, you know, the, the case at, at large and review, you know, take a look at in depth what has our district staff done. I like to be able to have that independent expert come in and um, someone that's a neutral third party and independently say, yes, I agree with what the district staff has done in this position. So it really bolsters um, the strength and credibility of the district's case by having an independent expert come in into these cases. Got it. Got it. Back to the factors, Christy. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, no, that's fine. I also interrupt a lot. Oh, that's fine. So, yeah, going back to the educational benefits, I mean, this this child needed such intensive um education as far as like developing his communication that the court found that uh, he would be better served in the deaf school. Now, as far as, go ahead. I I just think that's key. It's like this case was really interesting. So we've got a 13-year-old kiddo with, was it average cognition or above average intelligence actually in this case where um, when we look at the Rachel H. factors, uh, the court kind of, to me in this case particularly, just kind of did its own thing. Mm and didn't necessarily analyze the, the factors that we see uh, in all the, in, in the other cases, I think, in this case, because the, the key issue in this case was just this child's ability to be able to communicate, and he wasn't going to be able to be, he wasn't going to gain those communication skills that he was either going to, that he was going to need if he stayed in that gen ed setting. So um, I think communication was, was a big factor in this particular case. Could that be tied back to one of probably one of the I assume one of the critical IP goals to in fact address that communication piece is that is that the nexus that maybe gets the court to to be able to hang its hat on academic benefit educational benefit that absent the communication skills the the other part of education or academic benefit is all for is is kind of hollow or or no well no I think that's a good question um, in this particular case I mean this student wasn't a student that needed academic goals. You had above average intelligence. So the key area of need for this particular student was communication. Right. And so definitely that was a that was the compelling point in this case. Christy, what about the other Rachel H. factors in this case? So the court did consider the non-academic benefits of mainstreaming and it, the court did conclude that this particular student would, would receive some non-academic benefit to the general education classroom because he actually had a number of friends in his school. Uh, so that factor did weigh in favor of uh, student and mainstreaming. Um, but the court did notice note that the IDEA is primarily concerned with the long-term educational welfare of disabled students. So again, that goes back to there was more focus on that first factor. And as far as uh, the impact on the classroom, the court looked at that as well as far as on the other students and the teachers and um, both parties in this case agreed that the student was above average intelligence and would not detrimentally affect the classroom environment if he were mainstream but again they emphasized that the major concern here was what would be the best educational program for the student not the detrimental impact on the classroom so in the ninth circuit's view factor one districts favor factor two and three students favor factor four not touch district prevails mm-hmm. so that's an easy summary what about uh, marcy uh, other cases that um, along these lines and i'm curious to see if, if pattern wise it plays out the same way as as Pula did or some of these newer cases that we'll talk about in a little bit. 
I love that you're focusing on a pattern. And while we have this four factor <laughs> test, you'll see that the, the outcomes are different depending upon you know the student. So um, I wouldn't really say that there's a pattern, but I definitely see the courts, whether it's OAH, you know, or Office of Administrative Hearings or other Ninth Circuit cases, certainly looking at this four factor approach. I mean, um, I'd love to talk with you about some of our other Ninth Circuit cases. We have the case of KM versus Tehachapi. Um, actually, that's not a Ninth Circuit case. So, uh, well, within um, the Ninth Circuit, right? Yeah. A district court case within the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. Uh, now, that particular case involved um, a second grader with autism. And um, the court looked at, you know, each one of those four Rachel Holland factors, sometimes called the, the Holland factors. And really, they pretty much all weighed in favor of um, the district's position in this case, was, which was that that student needed to be pulled out of um the setting that she was in, she actually was in a mild to moderate classroom for students with autism, and the district wanted to put her into a more restrictive setting. Um, this case is a hallmark of, of one of the things I had mentioned earlier, which is behavior. Um, this is a student that was engaging in hitting, biting, kicking, pushing, and in those kind, kinds of cases, the court's almost always going to lean towards this idea of yes, the student, the severity of a student's disability means that they need to be removed. Um, from this less restrictive setting to a more restrictive setting. So it, as, as you're describing that um, question that comes to mind for me, and this kind of goes back to some of the things we talked about at the beginning, because this is all about inclusion versus restrictive, more restrictive environment, is LRE often the issue most litigated when we talk about cases involving residential treatment facilities? Is that an issue that arises more frequently in the, in the residential treatment facility context, or would you say it's that that isn't necessarily the case? So there are LRE concerns with residential placements. Uh, the issue here is that removing a child from not only the general education setting, but from the home is a very restrictive placement option. Well, yeah, and I think with our residential placement cases, we typically see a, a pool between um, why is a the student there in the first place? Are they in a residential placement for educational reasons or are they in an educate uh, residential placement for behaviors that perhaps are being exhibited outside of the school? I think those are the biggest um, debates that come up in our residential placement cases. But in terms of our LRE cases, um, you're going to see that issue coming up more when there's that disagreement between, um, you know, 80, 90, 100 percent inclusion versus a special day class uh, type setting. How often to the extent the cases that you two just talked about and the ones which we're going to talk about end up in the district's favor, do you still see a fair amount of disputes in the due process setting before OAH fighting LRE? Yeah, I actually wanted to pull that number up. I wanted to, uh, we could just pull up OAH cases in the state of California and look to see how many cases, and there's a number of them, you know, substantial number of cases litigated here before OAH that have to do primarily with this debate over LRE. Okay, so it is it is heavily. It's litigated. a heavily litigated area. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's turn to um, to you, Christy. The JS case. Tell us about it. So the JS case uh, at the start of the dispute, the student JS was a fourteen-year-old girl and she was in the seventh grade, and she qualified for special education under intellectual disability. She had Down syndrome, um, you know, and at the time of this dispute, she was in the general education setting um, for academics, um, so she was mainstreamed a, a lot. 
um, and she had a one-to-one -one aid. Um, however, she was functioning at a first and kindergarten grade um, academically. Um, she needed the curriculum modified. And so the IEP team had met and it was revealed that she had only met 40% of her goals. And there was a concern that she was not making educational progress in the general education setting. And some of the, the feedback the teachers gave was that she put her head down on the desk when the peers asked her questions and she got frustrated and uh, would withdraw. And let me just interject here. I think that the facts that you just shared with that one, these types of statements about how a student's behaving and whether or not they're paying attention in the gen ed setting, these are the types of things that we need to be talking about in IEP meetings. Um, the concerns that were, that were present with this particular student are definitely concerns that should be discussed through the IEP process as that provides the evidence then to show that a change in placement is necessary. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, and this particular student, she was with, withdrawing in class and her social skills had actually regressed. And the special education teacher said she there was minimal growth and there was regression. She was receiving Fs in her general education classes, even though she had the one-to-one -one aid and she had uh, her class, her curriculum was modified to the kindergarten and first grade level. So the district, based on all of that information, the district's offer of FAPE changed to 42% of the time in a special day class for academic activities, 58% of the time in the regular classroom for extracurricular and non-academic activities. Uh, parents did not agree to the offer of FAPE. They really wanted her uh, fully included in the uh, general education setting. So they filed for due process and the district prevailed and eventually this made its way up to the Ninth Circuit. And of course the Rachel H. factors were applied here. And so I can, I can discuss the... Um, yeah, talk to us about those, those factors. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of comments that I think are just relevant in general when it comes to litigating these cases, but or IDA appeals in general, but talk to us about how the court worked through the factors in this one. Sure. So the first factor, the educational benefit, looking at the academics, uh, the court noted that all of the teachers that testified at the due process hearing said that the student could not participate in the classes, she could not understand the textbooks, and she did not have the necessary vocabulary uh, to participate in the classroom. Uh, it, it was also important to know that she was six to seven years behind her classmate in academic skills. Like we mentioned, she was performing at the kindergarten and grade one level, and she was in the seventh grade. So, she, and there was just the minimal progress on the goals. Um, and she had the individual aid, but it required a lot of prompting and, you know, it sort of, there was an inference that the aid was doing a lot of the work. She was overwhelmed and unengaged. Uh, so they, they found that she didn't really have an educational benefit in the general education setting. But she was still receiving, she was in the gen ed setting for approximately 60% of the time. It was not as if, right, so there's, which I think to me was an important factor before the Ninth Circuit during oral argument in this case was emphasizing the fact that we're not talking about full exclusion. There was 60% right. of the time 
in the general ed yes yes and it was just you know the academics she was just you know not doing she was languishing in that setting for her academics now as far as non-academic benefits the court found that she wasn't really receiving substantial non-academic benefits because she was actually embarrassed in the class because she couldn't keep up to her peers she couldn't participate in the group work she would put her head down um, you know, so that weighed in favor of the district um, not having her in the ac- uh, general ed setting for academic subjects. And the yeah. things that you're raising here, just the concern about a child's self-esteem and not being happy in class and uh, the inability to be able to access the curriculum because she's operating at a level so many years um, behind where the other students. These are common things that our clients are struggling with. Like, what do we do in these types of cases? So the things that you're sharing right now and the the types of um, statements here that you're sharing with us as far as what the court focused on, these are the exact types of questions that we're getting from our clients. and These are the exact types of comments that we should be discussing at IEP meetings. So I I definitely want to hear the the court's thoughts on this next factor here. Yeah, no, I completely agree that all of these sort of facts are, you know, really useful for our clients. Um, Now, as far as the third factor, the impact on the students and the classroom, this was actually weighed in favor of the student. She didn't have any behavioral uh, issues whatsoever. Um, So that was one factor that weighed in her favor. But again, you know, the other factors were just so heavily in favor of, you know, academics in another setting. And as cost, this was not considered at all, and the court actually noted that it appeared irrelevant. No surprise there. But this is why when we we get those client phone calls um, and the question is, gosh, what do we do? We think that this child should be in a special day class setting for 60% of the day or more, for example. But a parent wants their child to be mainstreamed for 90% or 100% of the day. What do we do? Um, We're going to start asking questions. We're going to say, well, what is the age of the child? Are they currently making academic progress? Um, how much progress are they progressing in their um, in their goals? Are they currently mainstream to what percent? Um, so th- all the types of questions that we're going to ask are, are uh, questions that are going to help us help you hone in on what LRE is for that particular child based upon these Rachel H factors and the way the courts look at these types of cases. Yeah, and just a, I would say a couple of nuts and bolts from just a litigation eye and and special due process perspective. Because when it's all said and done, the JS case, the opinion from the court was an unpublished memorandum opinion. It's less than four pages in length, which tracks back to, A, the initial significance and importance of the due process hearing itself, including making sure you have all your adequate witnesses lined up and your post-hearing briefing directly addresses critical issues that you would anticipate on appeal. Here, one of the major things was the, the weight given to and credibility of the student's expert, which the ALJ did not find credible, in part because of the lack of firsthand observation and understanding of the student's actual experiences in class. So then that moves up to the district court level where, again, almost parallel, but I think even to a, an even more detailed degree, you do your comprehensive briefing, you're relying upon the administrative record, you're submitting an excerpts of record to the district court that fully justifies that ALJ's thoughtful, careful decision, which is then due deference. And if you've succeeded at that point, and so heavy emphasis and focus at the making the record, setting your record up for a thoughtful decision by the ALJ, and then doubling down at the district court level with hitting every, dotting every I and crossing every T in terms of the record supporting that ALJ's decision, 
once you get there and the Ninth Circuit or Court of Appeals is, is considering what degree of deference to give to a decision that's now been issued and then supported and, and, and affirmed by the district court, you're in a fairly strong place when it comes to cases like this. So despite extensive briefing before the Ninth Circuit that Christie carried most of the analytical and laboring or on, um, and then oral argument, we end up with a, with a fairly brief and civil decision. A great outcome for our client, I think supported by the law, but it just really, to me, hammers home the importance of that due process case itself, and then if appealed, doubling the efforts to make sure that that decision is adequately and clearly supported by the record for the district court. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of the cases that we're talking about today all started, obviously, at the due process level. I'm not emphasizing that, but none of the cases, in none of these cases, was the original decision by the ALJ overturned. Right. So that, that initial hearing process is extremely critical. Great point. So what about the, so JS, that comes out in January 2019, just a few months later in April 2019, the Ninth Circuit issues another memorandum opinion, again, with a whole bunch of briefing behind it and amicus curiae joining in to to have their two cents, but it's another brief opinion, the RM case. What can you tell us about that, Marcy? Well, interestingly, as you know, the, the decision in the RM case at the Ninth Circuit, three, not even three pages. Um, so again, emphasizing that uh, initial administrative hearing process is, is absolutely critical. I mean, believe it or not, this case went up to the Ninth Circuit. And the decision was just issued here in um, April 2019. We're talking about an LRE dispute over 20 minutes. The district in this particular case, and it was involving a child that was a kindergartner with uh, Down syndrome, this case was um, a case where the district had proposed increasing this kindergartner's time in special education pullout services by 20 minutes of extra pullout time. So this was a child where she spent part of the day in a gen ed setting and part of the day um, you know, being pulled out of that gen ed setting for various special ed supports. But the whole dispute was over 20 minutes of time. Goes all the way up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit looked at the um, the Holland factors that we've been discussing today, and basically agreed with the district that in order for her to receive um, benefit, um, looking at those LA, uh, Holland factors, um, that the district's proposal to increase her time by twenty minutes, by twenty minutes, um, met the LRE requirements. Yeah, and I know that this, uh, that opinion also got into some kind of location type issue, but separate and apart from. From LRE. I, I know you guys talked about Pula. That's one of the cases that the Ninth Circuit looks to in these, these concise opinions. They both hinge their analysis, right, on Rachel H., which is why we're emphasizing that case. The other case that is cited in both is this Bacorizo versus Garden Grove Unified School District case, which is a 2016 Ninth Circuit case, uh, again, dealing with LRE, but really kind of drives home the, the importance of this central Rachel H. case and 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 case by case analysis of of those factors are there any but between these two uh rulings these two opinions are are there uh, specific to the rulings themselves any critical takeaways that you two would identify uh, i've got some broader questions about lre in general but these rulings themselves are there there are factors or points that you think are, are important for school districts and county offices of ed to know about 
What I noticed about the two cases is just the emphasis on factor one. That seemed to be, you know, weighed heavily. Uh, just the academic benefit that the child is receiving. Well, yeah, a number of these decisions actually say exactly what you just said, Christy, which is that when the other factors weigh in favor of mainstreaming, um, the student's academic needs, quote, the court has said this a number of times, weigh most heavily. So it, th these cases are always difficult. I mean, I love to look at these quotes taken from the cases, and I'd like to be able to hang my hat on that academic factor. But um, for those of you that, that, that you know, give us that phone call, we're always going to look at all the factors, of course, and it's really hard to say that one factor is more important than the other. Um, of course, we always just go back to the general FAPE analysis and ask that overarching question of whether or not the child is able to receive um, appropriate benefit. Um, and that, that, that standard of appropriate benefit is always going to be there, and it's always going to be the umbrella and the lens with which we analyze these, these um, LRE factors. It seems like in discussions with you two, and I, I fully understand, I think our listeners will understand this idea. We've got to look at all four, knowing that cost is kind of this, and I'm going to ask something about cost here in a second, but academic slash educational, but then, Marcy, you mentioned earlier, it, that behavior factor impacts within the classroom on teachers and kids seems to be another critical of the, of the, the remaining three, and so it's almost like those two are the most likely factors. And I know you're staring at me like, Sloan, don't try to make a rule out of this. But it seems like those two could be, in the end, the most important factors if you, as a district, are trying to justify a more restrictive environment. Well, certainly. We're, we're definitely not changing the Rachel H. rules. We, we know we have all these four factors. However, you know, when we get these, um, these calls and you know, it's like, oh, yes, the student's making academic benefit. Yes, they do have some social benefit, but what about their behavior? If the student's making academic and social benefit, but their behavior is such that they're disruptive of the classroom and taking away from the ability of the teacher to teach the rest of the students in the class or other students' own educational opportunities um, are being impeded by that student's behavior. I mean, those types of cases are going to be, as I mentioned earlier, sort of uh, the cases that are going to lean in favor of removing that child from that setting because we've got to look at the education of, of everyone, including no. that one child. That child cannot be um, receiving an appropriate education if their behavior is such that it's um, impeding their own ability, right. actually, to, to I assume them. even more so if the behavior we're talking about is one that actually potentially risks harm to students and staff. As opposed, because because obviously, whether general even general ed setting in California today, a heavy emphasis on disruption alone not being a basis for certain degrees of discipline, and so there's that spectrum where once it gets to the point where I think one of the fact patterns you guys described, biting of, of staff and other students, that is that right? Absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. If a student's behavior is aggressive, and if it's yeah. consistently regressive, and there's high frequency of aggressive behavior, that's that's data that supports um, definite change in placement. I would agree with that, too, and sometimes you see where a child is doing well academically, but the behaviors are just out of control. Two closing questions. This has been fun, hasn't it? I love it. Right. Lots so of fun. two closing questions, and then, then we'll wrap up um, our discussion uh, for our listeners. But takeaways. One, what would you say the best practices are? And I know we can't nail down all of them, and, and maybe... The list is limited, but what would you say the best practices are for LEAs in ensuring they properly address the LRE issue? And two, what do you see as the next trends in terms of least restrictive environment if we look toward um, due process proceedings and then the litigation that might follow? Um, are there 
particular issues that that you see bubbling that that you think is the next wave of litigation or the next fight when it comes to LRE? Well, gosh, do we have another half hour here? Um, no, so let's try to at least answer the first question here. Right. Um, I mean, best practices, in, or, in order to really understand what a child needs for their LRE to be satisfied, we have to start with comprehensive assessment. We have to really make sure that our staff have um, a comprehensive and complete understanding of where that child's currently functioning. Because if we have an understanding of where the student is functioning, then we're going to ensure that we have appropriate goals. Because we're looking at LRE and we're looking at those Holland factors, we have to say, we have to look at those goals and say, are we able to educate this child to the maximum extent appropriate in a gen ed setting? Are they going to make progress on those goals? So we have to look at goals and we have to start with comprehensive assessment for us to be able to make sure that we're putting that child in a gen ed setting to the maximum extent appropriate that's going to allow them to make progress on their goals, whether they're academic goals, whether they're social goals, whether they're behavior goals. So. Um, just making sure that we have that, that comprehensive assessment process and that all staff is involved in helping shape that decision. And as well as considering input from the parent. Parents are an integral part of helping us make sure that we have a complete and thorough understanding of, of the child, of their disability, of their strengths, and where their needs can best be met. So I love when I see um, school staff and parents working in partnership to, uh, to meet that LRE requirement. And I would agree, and just, you know, to uh, go off of Marcy a little bit more, um, just I, being able to identify all of the needs of the child so that goals can be written in the areas, because sometimes we see when we're looking at IEPs or assessments that certain needs have just been missed altogether. And so if you don't understand or don't know all of the uh, needs of the child, then it's hard to determine what is the LRE. Mm -hmm. There's a number of cases out there that have literally said in black and white in their decisions that an IEP team does not need to actually discuss the Holland factors. Of course, we know we probably never discuss the fourth factor of cost at an IEP meeting. But even those first three factors, there are a number of decisions that say you don't have to go through a discussion of these three factors. But I got to tell you, I love when I see IEP teams actually discuss these three factors and they're documented in the IEP notes. And typically, if I get that phone call, I will actually advise um, our staff, our clients to, um, to actually go through that process in their assessments as well as in the IEP team discussion and documentation. That makes a ton of sense. A ton of sense. I'll add one thing. Um, that our, our staff can delete if they don't like. But the, another thing that comes to mind for me, and I'm thinking of Christie's, in my case with JS, is that uh, opposing counsel attempted to argue that under the new Andrew F. standard for educational benefit, that somehow under that standard, it changed Rachel H. in a way in which you couldn't just go to the factors. It had to be a higher degree or or focus or measure by the court that somehow it changed the Rachel H analysis. And I think we argued and the court agreed with the concept that, well, Rachel H requires you to look at individual circumstances, case by case, what the student's needs are. That's exactly what Andrew F is telling us to do too. So I'm not, I, I don't raise that as a potential new area for litigation, but just to point out that, that an, at least an attempt at making that argument was made in our case. And it, it did not appear that the, the court 
the court bought onto it. But you're seeing that push in a number of cases, whether it's LRE or some other issue that pushed that the Andrew F. case changed the standard of FAPE in general. And it's that language of, um, you know, appropriately ambitious, that an IEP must be, quote, appropriately ambitious. But you're absolutely right, Sloan, that the Andrew F. standard did not change Rachel H. And I'm glad to see that the Ninth Circuit agreed with us on that. Thank you both. Thank you. You did a great job. Oh, Thanks we'll for see. joining us for another Lozano Smith podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we encourage you to listen to our podcast. Um, go to our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. And make sure that you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of them. Have a great day. Thanks, Marcy. Thanks, Thanks Christy. Everyone. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.